Hello. Good to see you all. Uh, Molly Holloway, our youth pastor, and I have been away in Harrogate this week. Um, we have been at um, a national leaders conference and came back really full of some of the stuff that God's been doing. And as Pete alluded to, I am unashamedly going to leave some space at the end of this message. Um, I just have a sense that there's some stuff that God wants to impart, um, that Holy Spirit wants to, um, to touch us individually as well as collectively today, and that what has beautifully begun in worship, he wants to continue. So um, I hope to be able to leave a bit more space towards the end, um, but I'd love to pray. God, we hear a lot of words on a Sunday, but it's your voice that our hearts are craving and longing for. I pray that you cut through all the other noise that clamors for our attention and that you'd speak to us today. I know that there are people who have come today who are at the end of themselves and just needing a touch from heaven. I know that there are other, others of us who have come and we're relatively self-sufficient. Maybe we don't even see how much we need you. But Lord, you love each one of us. And you really want to meet with us today so that we can carry you to the world around us. So that we can reflect your glory and your kindness, and your grace, and your life. So I just want to ask God that you would do what only you can do today. Beyond anything that I have to say, I pray that your voice would be loud and clear and resonant. We love you, Jesus. You're the reason we're here today, and we need you. Amen. So I want to invite us as a church to live on the edge. We've been thinking about facets of Jesus. And one of the facets that I notice when I look through my Bible is that Jesus loves faith, doesn't he? He responds to faith more than any good works that we can do, more than all the stuff we can build for here, more than our activity, um, more than looking like we have it all together, more than the outward appearance Time and time again, as you read through the New Testament, Jesus' heart was moved by faith. Think about that woman who had been bleeding for many, many years, and there's a crowd pressing in on Jesus, and she just knows that if she can reach out and touch the hem of her gar his garment, something will change. And he feels power surge out of him as she does that in that moment. And I mean, there's so many taboos that she breaks. There's so much that I could go into. But he loves her faith and he responds to her faith. I wonder how our faith levels are doing individually today. I wonder how our faith levels are doing Skylark Church corporately right now. I wonder if Jesus loves the level of faith that he finds internally in you and in me. I feel challenged by that. Let's read together from Matthew 14, 22 to 33. 
Jesus walks, I'm sorry, Peter walks on the water. And Jesus too, to be fair. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said. I love that that's their first reaction. And cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. Man, I know if we've been in church for a while, we have heard this passage so many times. So I almost feel like, oh, it's a tricky one to bring, isn't it? Because everybody already knows this story. But I want us to revisit it, hopefully with some fresh eyes today. As we think about what it looks like to live on the edge, you see there's this moment where Peter is standing in the boat and he's got one foot dangling out and he's ready to dare to believe that he could walk on the water towards Jesus. It's absolute insanity. It's the world's definition of foolishness. It's probably most of our definition of foolishness. There he is and he's got one foot in the comfortable, solid base of the boat And there's this massive storm around him. And he's there on the edge, living in that posture of radical faith. 21 years ago, Peter and I came to this church. And I've been thinking a lot about what was it that made us stay. Because honestly, uh, we moved to Chelmsford with the intention of going to a different church. That's the truth. Uh, We didn't come to, the, to Chelmsford to be part of this church, but God had other plans, and it's a really cool story that I don't have time to go into this morning, how we ended up here. Love to share it with you over a coffee if, you, if you're interested. But there was something about this church that really made us stay, and it wasn't because it was slick. They were crazy days. Anyone who was here back then will know. I mean, you never really knew what was going to happen from week to week. Uh, there was quite a lot of like shouting, and uh, we're fairly English, so I mean that was a bit weird, um, and a lot of like holy chaos. But the thing that made us stay is it was a church full of faith, with leaders full of faith, and people who were wholeheartedly full of faith. Rick and Bev Murrell, they 
I mean, they invited us to live on the edge week after week. I remember, and loads of us will remember, staying up till one, two in the morning, trying to frantically get all the journals finished for our first ever women's conference. And now it's something that we take for granted. But, I mean, it was a pioneering thing back then that we did. And I remember... The, the weeks where we had our eye on a different premises, we used to meet in a school hall, and um, Rick Murrell, who's just such a man of faith, and he saw this, build, this particular building, not the one we're in now, and we had extraordinary prayer meetings, we were coming down, like just believing that God was going to give us a building where we could just do more kingdom stuff. And that building fell through, and I remember Rick's response. He was like, yes, but no prayer that we've prayed has been wasted. That's just a stepping stone in our journey. And we were like, that's so true. And so eventually, we got to the point where we were praying for this very building. But to access this building, it required change of use by the council because it was used for industrial purposes. Uh, It wasn't used as a place of worship. And so um, we were, first of all, that was rejected, I seem to remember. I remember leading worship the Sunday after um, our application for change of use was rejected. And we were all fairly dejected. Um, And yet... This surge of faith came from within. And sure enough, I don't remember how long later, we moved into this building. We were granted change of use. And that first time that we came into the building, we had to bring our own chairs. And we were kind of set up over here. There was a massive roller blind thing at the back there, sort of a corrugated iron thing. And it was discovered that our worship was too loud for our lovely neighbors. And so for a long time, we had to just worship unplugged. We weren't allowed to have any amplification at all until we'd soundproof the building and so on and so forth. And what we live in, people are laughing because it really was like that, wasn't it? And I also remember Rick and Bev saying, um, in fact, Bev was telling me this story when she was here last, that um, the church had grown to such a size that they needed the new premises, but the first week that they came into the building, only about two-thirds of the church turned up, and then in the subsequent weeks, it seemed to get less and less, Um, and of course, you know, God did what only he can do, and we've been reaching the community and stepping out in faith ever since. But those of us sitting here now today, many of us who are newer, we have no idea the faith journey it took for us to inhabit the thing that we are now comfortable with. We take for granted week upon week that we're sitting on a chair that isn't a picnic chair, that you know there isn't a big old roller blind at the back, that we have worship, that we have these things. We don't have to cart all our instruments from pillar to post every week and set up afresh. I mean, the armies of volunteers that were getting up from about 6 a.m. on a Sunday morning, like we live in the fruit of somebody else's faith journey. And it's easy to become really comfortable with that. I remember people selling up and heading out to Uganda, and we heard more about that when Brent was here a few weeks ago. Just incredible people in our midst. You just as Bev threw the gauntlet down and as Jesus spoke, people went, hey, I'm in. I'm all in. I'm doing this. And some of them are here today, and your faith has inspired us. We can become so comfortable, can't we? That's the truth of it. We can become so comfortable. But I really believe that God is inviting us once again to be followers who live on the edge, who live in that liminal space, 
that are willing to risk our cost and our comfort to step out again and to follow Jesus. And the pandemic has shaken us up. If we were comfortable, nothing was comfortable during that time. There were no fixed points of reference for us. It was a reminder that we can depend on one thing and one thing alone, and that's, that's Jesus. But now that things are, quote, unquote, stepping into the new normal, the challenge is to retain that posture of amazing and radical faith. And as we've been praying over us as a network, we've really felt the Lord say this, don't lose your edge. Don't lose your edge. Don't lose that faith edge. Don't lose that thing that's part of our DNA, that's part of our inheritance. There's an invitation for us to live in that faith space, which I will define today as the space between the comfortable and the impossible. It's the most exciting space to be but it's also the most terrifying space to be. It's sink or swim space. It's if God doesn't show up, it's not happening space. What does it look like for us individually to live there, just like Peter on the edge of that boat? So what does it look like to live a life of faith on the edge? Let's take a little look at this clip from a well-known television show. We will let you know when each of you can start making your way along the plank. Charlene, you're up first. Make your way along the plank and into that red area at the end. Okay. Good luck in your own time. Go on, Charlene. Go on, Charlene. Take your time. Brilliant. Well done. platform, if we were at home and it was just nicely on our living room floor, we could do that in a second, couldn't we? Literally, we'd be like, duh, 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 I'm done. 
But once you're suspended in midair and the wind is raging and you are exposed and you are vulnerable and you have got to take that step, I reckon that's what living on the edge feels like and looks like. Absolutely terrifying. And the things that should take you one minute, you agonize over in a different way. I love that clip because, I mean, firstly, I mean, what courage, first of all. I'm not sure I would have found myself doing that. But secondly, such a great way to help us understand and visualize what life on the edge should look like and feel like for us. So I want to ask, what are some of the things that can cause us to lose our edge? What can stop us living on that sharp faith edge? And I think the first thing is comfort. You know, it would have been a lot easier for, is her name Charlene? Yeah, for Charlene to stay um, back and not take that step forward. She could have cried, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. But she didn't. And comfort is tied in really to our safety and our security. That feeling of, no, I'm good. I'm fine where I am. I mean, I love Jesus, but I don't need to do that. I don't need to do that thing. That's just madness. Why would I do that? I'm happy. I'm cozy. Things are good. There's a lot of things that are important to us in life. And Maslow says that safety and security are high up there on the hierarchy of needs. But sometimes comfort and safety and security can paralyze us from stepping into the things of God. I don't want that to be my story. But right now, we're in a world that idolizes financial security more than ever with the cost of living soaring. And I get it. I get it. We are feeling it. And some people are feeling it to the point of desperation. But it's very easy to react in a counterintuitive way and to go, you know what? I'm just going to make sure I've got enough for me. I'm going to look after me and mine, and I'm battening down the hatches, and I'm done. But that's not the way that Jesus is calling us to live or respond to the crisis that we see. He's calling us to stretch out in generosity. He's calling us to be countercultural in the way that we follow him. And that means that we might have to forsake the idol of comfort and security in our own lives in order to meet the needs of others. If it's you, Lord, tell me to come. But the next thing that can maybe stand in our way from living on the edge is complexity. Overcomplicating, overthinker. Hands up if you're an overthinker. I am a definite over... I'm glad I'm not alone. Thank you. I am such an overthinker. Definitely. I mean, listen to this, right? As part of our time away, I was invited to a dinner, and it was in between a session and an evening session, and I knew I was going to be part of the prayer ministry team in the evening session. So this is how much I overthought what I was going to choose for dinner, right? Firstly, I'm thinking, it was, it was an Italian restaurant. Now, I can't eat spaghetti because it's really hard to eat spaghetti and have a conversation. It's like, it's an impossible thing to do, and it's really messy, so I'm not going to eat that. And then I'm thinking, oh, I'd really like that, but it's got garlic in it. And if I'm going to be praying over people, it's never a good thing to, you know, for them to fall over in the power of my garlic breath, so that's gone. And I'd like basically overthought the whole menu that I went to an Italian restaurant and ate sea bass. I mean, what? No pasta, no pizza. Um, 
overthinking, overcomplicating, over-administrating. They all lead to overwhelming. And if we're going to have a faith edge about us, we've got to lose some of that stuff. We've got to lose some of it. We overcomplicate things. And at times we're guilty of overcomplicating Jesus. He says, come. And we think of all the reasons why we couldn't or shouldn't or mustn't. We think about the health and safety. We think about our risk assessment. And to be honest, no one would ever follow Jesus if we did an actual risk assessment because following Jesus is dangerous. And in certain parts of the world, it's so dangerous that people lose their life for it. We're not called to a life of comfort. We can make it all so complicated. And think about Charlene. I mean, she must have been thinking, man, how do I even work my legs? I can't even remember how to put one foot in front of the other at this height, with that drop, with the wind, with all of that stuff. You begin to overthink stuff that you do naturally. Have we made it all too complex? I don't know. I think about church, and I think, man, I think we have, you know. We outsource worship week upon week, don't we? I think we do. I think we rely on a few people at the front and feel that if we've just joined in with them, we've worshipped Jesus. But I wonder if actually he, he just wants our heart, whether he just wants your, your heart, your reckless abandon, your faith level, your voice, what you bring to the table. Maybe that's the thing he's looking for. We overthink so much of it. But there's an invitation in this new season to become learners again. To be those who ask more questions than we can find answers for. Who have a posture of humility. Whilst we were away, I was, I was showing with the team that... Um, there was this viewing tower in the, in the apartment we were staying in, and I've never ever seen anything like it. Uh, you went up this little windy staircase, and we were already on the third story of like a big old house in a, in a flat. And up this final stairway, it was like a turrety thing, it's the only way I can describe it, and it had panoramic views all the way around of the city, and it was such a cool place to pray in the morning, just to look out over the city and pray. And on the last night of the, of the conference, whilst we were away, God called everybody in the room back to their first love. And there was this moment where there were just 1,800 leaders on their knees, and it was completely silent. There was no hype. There was nothing. Everybody on their knees. And I had such a, a beautiful encounter, just coming back to that simple thing, that first love, that Jesus who I gave my heart to all those years ago. And when I came to pray the following morning, I was sitting on a chair looking out at this panoramic view. And I felt God say, nah, I just want you to stop where you left off last night. Could you kneel? So I knelt in his presence. And as I looked out of that, at that same view, this time I couldn't see any buildings couldn't see any of the rooftops or chimneys before I could see all of that. Now all I could see was sky and a couple of birds who were flying high enough. And I felt God say this, a posture of humility and reverence causes the man-made stuff just to become invisible. And all you can see is me. 
I thought, wow, God, I just, that's how I want to live. I want to live like that. And I'm so sorry for the times that I don't, that I'm so focused on the man-made stuff, the stuff that I've created or that we've created. The activity is all good, but we need more of the majesty of heaven. We need more of what he has. And as we pull that into who we are and what we do, we're going to see stuff change. Compromise. I love that there was a, someone brought something about a backpack. I think it was Sue this morning in worship. You know, sin weighs us down. And if Charlene had been making that on the edge moment with a massive backpack on her back, she'd have fallen off. There'd have been a point where she toppled. To carry something heavy on our back when we're living on the edge is not the one. And I want to talk into this for a moment because compromise, like when we think about compromise, we always think about everyone else we know. It's really easy, isn't it, to, to notice where someone else might be compromising. Compromising can be subtle. Sometimes it's just a subtle attitude of heart that puts something else in the place of Jesus, that takes us away from our first love, that weighs us down. But if we lose our first love, if we lose our integrity, then we lose our edge. If we're no different from the world we're here to serve, how do they see Jesus? We can't step out if we're weighed down with clutter. So what are we lacking? Where are we deficient? Are we becoming more like Jesus? Are we desperate for his presence? Are we dependent on him? Does our ego get in the way? Does our pride get in the way? Does our tradition get in the way? Do our opinions get in the way? Do our preferences get in the way? Do our desires get in the way? You see, good works with no power or presence, they're just good works. But Jesus, coupled with our good works, well, that's transformation right there. Are we making disciples in our image or are we making disciples in his image? How much more like him are we becoming week on week, month by month? And cost. It's so easy for the price tag to get in the way. And I think about the rich young ruler. That guy comes to Jesus and he's like, I've done everything. I've kept all your commandments. How do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus looks at him. And he goes for that bit that hurts the most. And it would probably be different if Jesus had that conversation with all of us. It might not be the money that he goes for. But with this guy, that's the thing. Jesus says, look, you need to just go away. Sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. Then come and follow me. And the Bible tells us that he goes away. And he's, he's sad. Because he loves that stuff. And he doesn't want to let it go. Following Jesus on the edge in faith, it has to look like letting go of certain stuff. Things that might be good, but they take his place in our affections, our hearts, and our lives. Not relying on our own gifting, not relying on our own strength, not relying on our own understanding. Having a total dependency on Jesus, that's a tall order, isn't it? So I want to invite us as a church today to live on the edge. 
to up our faith level? What's your prayer life like? What are you dreaming? How generous are you? How are you as an individual or as a household leaning in and surrendering and trusting in Jesus? And I want to invite us to learn on the edge. Following Jesus is a journey. We're called to be disciples. That's how we learn and grow. So we don't have to have it all together. But every faith step we take is an opportunity to show others how to do it. And as we watch other people step out, it inspires us to do the same. Have we become comfortable? 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says this, For we live by faith, not by sight. And Proverbs 3, 5, that famous verse, Trust in the Lord and lean not on your own understanding. And I want to invite us to love on the edge To love on the edge means that we have to be all in. There's no plan B. What faith does it require to love those who don't look like us? Those who are different. Those who are on the margins. It's a really different level of love than to love those who look like us, speak like us, sing like us. And will there be a time where we're called to love those who even persecute us? Jesus tells us to love our enemies. What does that look like? We're skylarks. We're called to nest on the ground, to position ourselves in that liminal space, on the margins, the highways and the byways, and to love those on the edges of society, the least, the lost, the broken, the downtrodden, and to bring them into the center of God's story to introduce them to the love that changes everything. So, how's our faith levels? I reckon there's some of us sitting here today, and you're like, Nikki, you're always talking about this, or someone's always talking about this. I already feel like I'm out there. I've never noticed this before. But check out verse 24. And the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. It's interesting, isn't it? We always think about the faith moment for Peter being the one that I described, from the boat onto the water. But he was already miles away from the shore. He had already followed Jesus out there, and he had been buffeted For a long time, the wind was against the boat. It was a scary place to be. That guy probably already felt like he was on the edge. So to then take the next step, that's completely counterintuitive. Like, why go again? That's crazy, isn't it? And shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them. And I love that too, because Jesus comes on the edge The edge of night, time, and day. And you'll see in the Bible, there are so many instances where the Holy Spirit or Jesus show up just before dawn in that darkest stretch, that time when skylarks are supposed to be calling it forth, the new thing that God's doing. And Jesus goes to them in that edge moment. And he tells them to have courage. And we're going to need courage to live like that. 
But then there's this moment where Peter says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come. And that's a great principle to operate by. If you're about to take a faith risk, double check. If it's you, God, I'm in. And sometimes it won't be him, and then you don't need to take the step. But if it is, you'll know. He'll confirm it to you. And then you can take that step knowing that no matter what comes, he is with you. And Jesus says, come, come on, do this. You know, a massive part of Peter's story is the obvious fact that he didn't keep on walking on water. That the wind and the waves began to clamor, that he became overwhelmed, he lost sight of Jesus, and he began to sink. And it would be easy to think that he didn't want to do it again. He got back into the boat. It was shameful. Yet Peter pioneered the early church. So there must have come a time when he stepped out again and again and again. And part of the reason that we're here today is because he kept on stepping. There is a beautiful poem in our prayer room. And it was found in Mar Wybrow, our founder's Bible. And I love this. It says this. Doubt sees the obstacles. Faith sees the way. Doubt sees the darkest night. Faith sees the day. Doubt dreads to take a step. Faith soars on high. Doubt questions who believes. And faith answers I. Courage does not always roar. Sometimes courage is the quiet voice at the end of the day saying, I will try again tomorrow. Let's stand. I've literally just written at the bottom here, come empty, believing you will be filled. And I just feel that for some of us today, you've taken some some steps of faith and you have been buffeted by the waves and the wind, and you're like, seriously, I just don't think I've got it in me to do the next one. And if that's you today, I just feel like it's okay to come empty. It's not something that you can manufacture. It's something that really only God can give us. Faith is a gift. I think for others of us, We're just starting to lose our edge, maybe. And perhaps Holy Spirit is knocking on the door of your heart today, just going, you know what? It's time. It's time to get back on the faith waters. You weren't designed for comfort and security. And I feel that in some cases, actually, there's a need just to lay down those idols. And that's a really, really hard thing to do. I don't underestimate it. So all I'm going to do now is I'm actually I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up, but I don't, I don't want them to play anything at this point. And I'm just going to invite Holy Spirit. I know he's already here. I understand theologically that he lives in each one of us. But I also see very clearly that there are moments where he wants to come on us collectively. Collectively.
And it's always for a purpose. It's not just so that we can have a nice goosebump. It's to prepare us for what he's calling us to do and how he's calling us to live. I feel that Holy Spirit wants to meet with some of us today and fill us afresh. So if in the stillness of this next moment you feel like that's you, then I just want to invite you to reposition yourself. And that's just a way of, a bit like me kneeling down, it's that way of saying, hey, you know what, God, I'm yours. And just find some space, whether that's at the front or in the aisle or to the side. But let's just wait in his presence.